Hi, welcome everyone to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live EHV1 Horse Health Alert. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, digital editor of the Horse.com. This is a special edition of our Ask the Vet Live, and tonight it is brought to you free by Merck Animal Health. We're joined by our experts, Dr. Rob Mackay from the University of Florida and Dr. Nicola Pasterla from UC Davis. Welcome, doctors. Nice to be here. Nice to be here, too. Um, Dr. Mackay, you first. You're down in Florida where we've seen a lot of these EHV1 cases. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience and background and, uh, and your involvement in the EHV1 cases? Yeah, well, I've been a, uh, a clinician at the University of Florida um, for more than 20 years, and uh, we've seen uh, herpes outbreaks periodically through that time. I've managed them a lot differently, I might state, than we manage them now over the years. And uh, this most recent outbreak, I've been back and forth, which is, uh, began in Ocala, which is about 30 miles from the University of Florida, at the hits, at the Ocala hits show and um, I've been back and forth, been involved with that, have about uh, 55 conversations a day about it. <laughs> and uh, two of the horses, actually the only two horses that developed EHM um, from that uh, from that Ocala outbreak are presently in the hospital and I'm managing those ones. So I've had clinical experience. I don't do research on it, but I've had quite a bit of clinical experience over the years, including the current outbreak. Yeah, and we know how busy you are down there, so we appreciate you taking the time tonight to educate our audience and horse owners about this uh, important disease. Uh, Dr. Pasterla, you're over on the other coast. Uh, you're in Davis, California. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do there at the, at the vet hospital? Absolutely. I've been with the vet school for possibly 14 years, initially as a resident and now as a faculty. been enjoying working there here very much. I'm, I'm a clinician by nature and I have an appointment with a teaching hospital where we get to see any type of medical entities. And we also get confronted with horses that present with EHV1 infection have been generally involved mainly because these horses get, by default generally, they get referred to our institution. We have a state-of-the-art isolation that allows us to properly care for this animal, also prevents any potential spread to other horses. I also have a keen interest in EHV1 and other respiratory diseases, mainly from an epidemiological but also diagnostic aspect. Okay, thank you. And thank you also for joining us um, tonight. We were excited to have, have you on board as we put this together. I, I want to tell the audience, and you guys, many of you have probably listened in before, um, but I do have, because we have so many questions that we've received on this topic, I've structured the content to go over disease basics, then we're going to get into vaccination and immunity, uh, and then treatments and outcomes of the disease, and finally, biosecurity and ways to protect your horse and make decisions about traveling uh, to events that are coming up this spring. You can ask us questions live if you haven't submitted a question already. However, keep in mind that that's kind of the order that we're going to go into uh, the questions that we've already received. So maybe hang on and wait if your question is about biosecurity until we get to that section. 
if you're listening live and want to listen again, we will be archiving this on the website. So we're going to jump in and start with the basics of uh, equine herpes virus. And the first question is going to go to Dr. Pasterla, and it's from Stella, who is in Eden, Texas. And she wants you to please start with the basics and clarify this disease and how it manifests early on in the horse. Can you explain to us a little bit about EHV1, the respiratory disease, and also the neurologic disease? Absolutely. If you give me 45 minutes, I'm just kidding on that one. <laughs> I know. We don't I, have that much time. I know. I'll, I'll try to make it short. <laughs> so you got to consider that EHV1 is not a new virus, and it's a very widespread virus that has a worldwide distribution and affects all population of horses. That said, some of the characteristics of this virus is that it can present itself and cause different clinical presentations. The most common clinical presentation, and I would call it the most benign clinical presentation, is rhinopneumonitis. It's an upper respiratory infection that will affect generally young animals that will develop fever, go off feet, act depressed, have a snotty nose, maybe a little bit of cough and swollen mandibular lymph node. This is self-limiting in these animals. That said, they're all in less frequent instances, other entities that we see associated with this virus. One of them is abortion. It can be a sporadic abortion. One mare aborts one time. It can be an abortion storm. The other entities are neonatal death, where the animal, the pregnant animal, became infected in late gestation. It didn't lead to an abortion, but the birth to a, an infected fall that will Generally, they will not survive. They'll be born weak. They'll have signs of septicemia and eventually will die from respiratory complication. Probably the less frequent one, however, the one that definitely catches our attention because of the poor outcome is the neurological disease. And this is a multifactorial condition where factors that originate from the host, the environment, also the virus, may predispose not all the horses, but certain horses to then develop these neurological and often detrimental condition that can be sometimes associated with the humane destruction of these animals. The, the difficulty that we have with this virus is truly to predict which direction are we going during an outbreak. We generally see rhinopneumonitis in young horses. When it comes to performance, horses can be young adults to older horses. We see respiratory disease. We'll see neurological, unfortunately we'll see neurological condition as well. And in breeding animals, we'll rather see either respiratory disease, but also condition associated with the reproductive tract, meaning abortion. And one of the characteristics of EHE1 is that this virus that is widespread in horse population can actually persist within the host after exposure. That means that the virus will become latent, dormant, call it dormant, and can be reactivated if the host, the horse, is under certain stress factors, transportation, as example, exercise, certain immunosuppressive drug can cause a recrudescence of this virus, then leading these horses to shed the virus and contaminating the environment and exposing other horses. 
So, That's and we kind will... of the short version of EHV1. Yeah, and you did a good job of summing that all up. Um, we are going to get to biosecurity later on, but you mentioned stress in your response. So, is a horse show a place where a horse may be more likely to shed the virus? Do you mean with the stress circumstances? Yeah, with the, being, the stress of being at a horse show. It's very difficult to predict. What we as human beings consider stress may not be what a horse or what leads to stress in a horse. That said, we know that transportation, changes in the husbandry, sternus exercise can predispose as horses are considered stress factor that can partially immunocompromise the animal, leading or predisposing these horses to have a reactivation. Therefore, a horse that goes to a show and is transported for an extended period of time is at high risk of having a recrudescence of the latent stage compared to the same horse that stays at home and is under no perceived stress conditions. Okay. So our next question is for Dr. Mackay, and it came in from Pat, who is in Scotland. And Pat wants to know what the clinical signs are of the neurologic form of EHV, and is there likely to be any long-term damage to a foal that's severely affected at birth from EHV1? Well, if you uh, if I answer the second part first, there will be no long-term damage because the foal, unfortunately, will die. The, uh, the you know there's anecdotal uh, stories of uh, foals that survive born with uh, EHV1 infection, but I don't know how reliable they are. We regard it as just a a full-term abortion, really, and uh, they they're born very weak and uh, they usually die. If they survive, I mean, if they miraculously survive, they have the potential to have organ damage. Um, but there are reports of, of a few foals surviving. But in general, it's a cause of neonatal death, not neonatal disease and recovery. Okay. But if we go to the neurologic form, which uh, mostly affects adults, generally mature adults, and uh, the scary thing about this disease is that it comes on extremely fast. So uh, it's, it's very common. In fact, it's most common, I think, to miss the early signs and, and perhaps the most typical situation in that an unfortunate owner and an unfortunate horse might find themselves is that you go to a stall to see your horse and you find it down in the stall and it'll be lying on its chest or its side and it might be thrashing around, looking very anxious, sweating, struggling to get to its feet, uh, often unsuccessfully. Unfortunately, that's a pretty common uh, first encounter with the disease. If you do see it early, if you do see it right at the start, um, you notice that the hind limbs are uh, incoordinated and staggering. And uh, you might even see that the muscles, um, like the quads and the hamstrings, these sort of muscles that uh, keep the horse from falling to the ground, they are from tremoring and shaking. Uh, the horse may sweat. The horse, a smart horse may try to support itself against walls. I've seen those kind of horses back into a corner and sort of perilously stand there uh, that way. Uh, sometimes you'll see them, especially when they're trying to get up, sometimes you'll see them sitting like a dog because the hind limbs will be paralyzed, but the, the forelimbs will still be working, maybe not perfectly, but working, so the poor horse might get itself launched into a, uh, into a sitting like a dog. 
but, but be able to get no further. So that's that's common too, and and apart from the the staggering and the incoordination and the limbs, which are the most important signs. Uh, you can see the tail, uh, the paralysis of the tail is, is uh, you can see that in about, well, up to half cases may have paralysis of the tail, and, and you might first uh, notice this just as, the, as, as a limp tail, tail hanging limp, not moving, and if you take a hold of it, it will feel very weak. Instead of being like a pump handle, it will just be like a limp noodle. So that's something you might see, and especially in females, every time they move, they might leak some urine as well. Some horses can't urinate, and other horses leak urine every time they move. Either of those things is possible. And the other thing to note is this this really uh, advances rapidly. It comes on like gangbusters. It it may get worse over the first day, but usually, or even two days, but usually no longer than that. So it gets it gets bad very fast and then plateaus out. So you can probably say, just as a rule of thumb, that if a horse is still standing 48 hours after you first see those first staggering signs, then it's probably going to make it. If we look at horses that are down, unfortunately, that's probably at least half of them. I mentioned they could be struggling, uh, crashing around trying to get up. And um, you might see them on their chest uh, with the legs, sort of, with the hind legs sort of uh, weakly awkwardly positioned out to one side while they while they keep trying to use their front legs and um, as things get worse they'll lie on their side they'll struggle somewhat and as things get still worse uh, they lie on their side sort of paralyzed uh, very quietly no thrashing can't lift the head off the ground that's I guess the sad thing to say about that is that these horses uh, their mind is still sharp so it's it must be extremely stressful for a horse like that and that's the situation when that goes on for a while. We, uh, you know, we don't realistically expect survival if that goes on for more than a day or two. Okay. And that's, Dr. that's the biggest range of signs. You occasionally see some, some other signs. Dr. McKay, we have a question that's come in from our live audience. It's Brian in South Carolina, and he wants to know if EHV1 infection can cause a horse to lose weight rapidly. Is that something that you see in these horses? Yeah, but it's not a it's not a primary effect. It's, I mean, it's not a weight loss of effect of EHV one. It's a weight loss. You you do see these horses that are seriously paralyzed and then survive. They lose a tremendous amount of muscle mass uh, because of that. So yeah, if they get EHM, which is the disease we're talking about, and survive, they will go through a period where they lose. I mean, they really do lose their top line, their neck muscles, their their rump. Uh, just gets very bony. But it does have the potential to fill in again over weeks to many months. So, yeah, the weight loss is not, well, it's not necessarily loss of fat, it's loss of muscle. Okay. And Dr. Pasterla, we have a question that came in from Sarasha in Thailand, and she's asking if it's difficult to diagnose and confirm that an abortion was caused by EHV1. In general, that's pretty straightforward. If there's a laboratory that has the capability to actually test for different specimens during an abortion, ideally the confirmation of diagnosis will be based on histology as well as detection of EHV1 either in the placenta or the aborted fetus. As an alternative, 
the virus can be also found in uterine secretions. It seems to be a very reliable way. It's difficult based on clinical presentation alone, especially when you're dealing with a sporadic case. With sporadic, I mean one single horse that did undergo recrudescence of a latent stage where the virus then crossed the uteroplacental unit and affected either the placenta leading to placentitis or the fetus leading to premature death in utero, the fetus, and then abortion. So it's difficult to base it on clinical presentation. That said, there are ways based on histology and detection of the pathogen to specifically determine if EHV1 is associated with an abortion. Um, our next question is for Dr. Mackay, and it's from Linda in Illinois. And Linda says that she's seen more and more cases of EPM diagnoses in her area in the Midwest. She wants to know how EHV1 and EPM systems or symptoms or clinical signs are different from each other. Do you have any comments on that, Dr. Mackay? Yes, I'm actually really interested in EPM, so it's good that I got that question. <laughs> and <laughs> that, that may have been on purpose. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it was no accident. But the the uh, the upper Midwest has always been it's always had a fairly uh, it's always had a fairly high um, prevalence of EPM. So if it's ramping up even further, and I see this one's from Illinois. So um, Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, you know, they've always had pretty high prevalence of EPM. But it's uh, it's a good question. If we um, it, before I start talking about the the differences in clinical signs, you, sh you know, one important sort of uh, epidemiologic difference is that EHV1, or EHM, that's what we're talking about, the neurologic form, EHM typically these days occurs in outbreaks um, and you get transmission from horse to horse very, very uh, efficiently from horse to horse. Uh, EPM, on the other hand, it has a complicated life cycle and one horse does not affect another and it tends to be a disease just of individual horses here and there. So that's a distinction that uh, would quickly become apparent. And I'll just sort of focus on a couple of things. The first one is fever. Uh, EHM is virtually always preceded by a fever. That doesn't mean to say that you would be aware of that. I mean, if a horse suddenly got neurologic signs, you may not be aware of the fact that there was a fever before it. Um, there may even still be a bit of a fever at the onset of signs. And it, it's a sort of a, uh, it, it's an ironclad law that horses that have EPM only do not have a fever. So that's an important, important difference. The other thing I sort of mentioned before is that EHM always comes on very fast and then plateaus and the horse dies or is um, put to sleep or gradually gets better. So it comes on very fast, one to two days, even less usually of um, getting worse and then things stay about the same for a while and then they um, start to improve. Uh, so that would be the, the situation with EHM. With EPM, it can come on astonishingly fast, but on, in general it comes on sort of more slowly, more insidiously, progressively. And if it's not treated, it tends, even though the signs wax and wane, it tends to get worse and worse and worse. So the sort of the profile of the diseases are extremely different. And uh, another thing, another, another big, uh, another difference in most cases is that 
the signs of EHM are usually the same on the right side as they are on the left side. It's not always the case, but the left hind leg is going to be about as paralyzed as the right hind leg. That You call that symmetric signs. And one of the hallmarks of EPM is that the signs are worse on one side than the other. And um, the, 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 there's just, a, I suppose, a greater, there's a fairly predictable set of signs in EHM. You know, paralysis is much worse in the hind legs and the front legs, and when it affects the front legs, the horse goes down, can't get up. That's EHM. Very seldom do they have much in the way of other signs. They may have the bladder paralysis that I mentioned before and the tail paralysis, those kind of things. EPM can just have a huge range of signs. It can have one, le one front leg affected, both front legs, one hind leg, both hind legs. It can have a whole lot of brain signs. It can affect behavior. It can affect vision, balance, all those kind of things. So that's, um, I'm like uh, Nicola, I could I had easily used the 45 minutes there, but I better stop, I think. <laughs> well, in our next question, we're going to transition from neurologic to respiratory comparisons. Dr. Pasterla, we have a question from Lauren in South Carolina, and she wants to know if, well, she says, it seems that many of the EHV1 symptoms or clinical signs mimic equine flu. What are the main differences that you'd see between a influenza and EHV1. That, that, um, that applies to the respiratory disease, both of them. As I mentioned before, EHV1, the most common clinical presentation would be an upper respiratory infection. It's difficult to differentiate an EHV1 infection from flu, especially in adult horses. They are clinical characteristics. Both of these pathogens will cause fever, nasal discharge. The difference is that equine influenza virus will generally, in naive horses, cause this very harsh cough. It's a characteristic that we generally don't see associated with EHV1. That said, when it comes to partially immune horses, horses that either have been exposed previously or horses that have been regularly vaccinated, we see altered clinical presentation where the clinical signs may be milder, where a horse with fever, nasal discharge without coughing can truly be affected by equine influenza virus, as well as EHE1. A typical example is right now with the outbreak in Florida, as, as you may know, there is an issue with equine herpes virus 1 affecting at least seven horses. But there's at the same time also an outbreak of equine influenza virus. And it's sometimes difficult in these performance horses that have been previously vaccinated to determine based on a horse that appears mildly depressed, is febrile, not necessarily coughing, to determine which pathogen is affected. The strategy to attack these cases is actually to broaden the spectrum of pathogen or the testing for this pathogen using novel molecular techniques where a nasal secretion will or swab will not only be tested for equine herpes virus 1, the range will be expanded to other pathogens including strep equi, equine influenza virus, as well as EHV4. Our next question, Dr. Mackay, I'm going to give it to you, and then Dr. Pasterla, you might have a follow-up. Um, it comes from an anonymous emailer from 
British Columbia. She says that as the owner of a horse that was euthanized after contracting EHV-1, I would like to know what the likelihood of a horse that has been exposed to EHV-1 and has shown no symptoms, what is the likelihood that that horse could be a carrier? Well, in light of the fact, um, yeah, the, the question is the likelihood of being a carrier rather than becoming a carrier. Mm. That's interesting. But, the, you know, in light of the fact that many, probably most, although it varies in the different reports you see, most horses are already carriers of this latent uh, form of the virus, which Dr. Pastella called a dormant form of the virus. So most horses are already carriers. So, uh, you know, whether or not they uh, they become carriers of an additional outbreak strain, they're probably already carriers. Um, and they carry that virus in the lymph glands around their head and some of the nerves around their head. And uh, it's, it's, it's carried with, completely without clinical signs. Um, so whether or not that carriers uh, really isn't something to worry about because that's the sort of th that's the price of being an adult horse, being a carrier. So um, that part one wouldn't worry about. Uh, the but the having a horse, having a healthy horse in contact with a horse that dies of EHM, that's very worrying. And if there's, you said there were no clinical signs. So if there are, if if the contact horses go through a period of monitoring, and this would be up to a month. Uh, during which they show no clinical signs, then um, if they've had an infection, certainly at a at a very low level, and, um, and you know, and so whether or not they became they got infected, so they're very unlikely to have become infected, and you have to be infected first to become a carrier, so that's very unlikely. But even the horse, even say you have a horse that was in contact, did get a fever, or even got neurologic signs and survived. Um, once once the horse has convalesced, it's been through quarantine, it's got better, it will be a carrier, more than likely, of the virus that made it sick. But uh, Nicola can add to this, but the, but, but, but the notion is uh, the, the, uh, everyone, the consensus uh, that experts accept is that this horse, now that it's recovered, even though it's carrying that virus in a latent form, it is no more of a risk to any other horse than you know your average horse walking down the street. So once recovered, could well be a carrier, but that's not important. It's not a risk for other horses. It's not a risk for itself. Okay. And Dr. Pastrilla, did you have any follow-up to that? I would agree with Dr. McKay. We, we should not discriminate a horse that has been previously exposed to EHV-1. That would mean that would have to discriminate somewhere between 50 to 70 percent of all the horses. And it's interesting, if you look at the literature, there's at least to my knowledge not a single report of an outbreak of EHV-1 where the same horse was involved. So these events where the latent stage, the dormant stage, get reactivated and is the cause for the transmission do occur. We don't exactly know how often they occur. In an experimental model where animal has stress using corticosteroids, we try to recrudesce the virus, make it from dormant to be actively shed in a nasal secretion. It is possible, but it is relatively difficult, and it is not a very effective way to transmit the virus. So now uh, we're going to move into some of these vaccination and immunity questions. And Dr. Pasterla, 
I have one from Jean in Oklahoma. And Jean wants to know if the vaccine, if there is a vaccine effective against the neurologic type of this disease. If not, why? This might be, sure. an, <laughs> this is an in-depth in question. Um, and is there, is a, is a horse immune to the respiratory disease once they've contracted it and shown clinical signs and recovered? And if she doesn't breed, does she need to vaccinate her horses against rhino? Okay. That's quite a few questions there. Mm -hmm. It is. <laughs> you, you need to understand that the way the vaccine have been developed and their claim is in the aid of the prevention of respiratory disease as well as abortion. The majority of the vaccine will aid in the prevention of respiratory to maxi in the U.S. market will also prevent in, in decreasing the incidence of abortion. Not a single vaccine in the U.S. has a claim for the protection of this neurological disease. That said, what do we try to achieve with vaccine? Number one is decrease the severity of clinical signs if a vaccinated animal becomes exposed to EHV1, that animal may still contract the infection. That said, the severity of clinical signs will be milder. Second, there is also a reduction in viral shedding from a vaccinated animal versus a non-vaccinated animal. A tremendous benefit if you look at the herd protection of this horse to Reduce viral shedding means that there'll be less environmental contamination and hopefully a reduction in exposure to susceptible horses. Third, has been shown experimentally, and we need to be careful interpreting this experimental study into a naturally occurring disease, is that a vaccine will also reduce the amount of virus that is present in blood. And we know that what we call viremia, presence of this virus associated with specific cells in the blood, is one factor that predisposes certain horses to then develop the neurological disease, allowing this virus to actually enter the central nervous system. So the question is, why isn't there a vaccine with a claim to protect against neurological disease it's mainly because the studies, the, the large-scale studies, haven't been done. Further, we are lacking of a reliable animal model that would utilize not only older horses, but utilize young adults to middle-aged horses. There's also a strange difference, and, and I want to I pause here and, and, make, and make a point. There's a lot of discussion these days about what genotype are we dealing with the perception that there's a new mutant that is more virulent and responsible for greater disease and distress in these horses. I like to look at EHV1 as one virus, independent of the genotype. EHV1 is bad. EHV1 can cause a disease, and any of the two genotypes that we encounter the neuropathogenic or the non-neuropathogenic can cause all the four clinical entities that we discussed early on, which is respiratory disease, abortion, neonatal death, as well as neurological disease. That said, it has recently been shown that EHV1 strains 
that are retrieved and characterized from horses that develop neurological disease are more likely to have or to be of the neurotropic genotype. They have a slight variation in their genome. We also need to consider that the non-neuropathogenic genotype can be retrieved other horses with neurological disease. Typical example is the outbreak that is occurring in Florida right now where six horses, two of them having neurological disease, they're all infected with what we call a non-neuropathogenic genotype. So the question is to if the client or the, the horse owner does not breed the animal, is there a need to vaccinate these animals with a vaccine that has a label for the protection of abortion. Most of these vaccines that have a claim for the prevention of abortion will also have a claim for the prevention of respiratory disease. So there is a benefit of vaccinating animals for, for prevention of rhinoneumonitis. The schedule when vaccine needs to be given is slightly different in a performance horse and it will be in a breeding animal. I'm not quite sure. I hope I answered all the No, oh, yeah, no, I think here. I think you did. You touched on all of them. And we have a question that is kind of similar that has come in from our our, our live audience, similar but different. And I'm going to send it over to Dr. Mackay. And it's from Char in Spokane, Washington. And Char has an 11-year-old gelding who over the past two years has had a negative reaction to the rhino vaccine. She's chosen not to vaccinate him due to the reactions. Do you have any other recommendations or input for her? Uh, give me that one again. I didn't see that one. Uh, this, that this one's is, just come in. Okay, go ahead. This one's Yeah, this one's live from the audience. So she has okay. an 11-year-old gelding who has... Uh, had negative reactions to the rhino vaccine, and she's choosing not to vaccinate. Is that a good idea, or are there any other options for her? Well, there are a variety of different um, different vaccines. Um, I don't know if she's using the uh, the multivalent vaccines, which are against you know a variety of different diseases, or just a, a single univalent, just against herpes. But uh, so one of the, one option is to try different vaccine. However, if you have an 11 year old, uh, the, the the indication for vaccination uh, against herpes, a uh, gilding, not likely to get pregnant in the near future, I wouldn't think. Uh, the the indication uh, for vaccination uh, against herpes is fairly minimal in the in the setting that that you gave me. So, if you have any doubts about uh, vaccination. Uh, with that particular product, I don't think you need to do it. I don't think you're really losing anything uh, significant. And that's one of the, you know, continue. It's really important whether you get a reaction or not. I'm not sure where you live, but it's really important whether you get a reaction or not. To vaccinate against encephalitis of, of various kinds and tetanus, uh, it's worth a bit of a reaction. But in herpes, an 11-year-old gilding that may not travel around much, I think uh, that's probably something that you can forego for the rest of the horse's life. Okay. And Dr. Mackay, I have another question from you. It came in from Bob in North Carolina. And Bob wants to know if there's a specific time of year or time of pregnancy where you should give mares uh, the vaccine for, for EHV1. What are your recommendations on that? 
Well, the the general recommendations are the, uh, to use a vaccine that is uh, that has a label claim for abortion, and the mayor does need to have a prior primary set of vaccinations before it's pregnant, so that we're talking about booster vaccinations. But abortions usually occur in the last third of pregnancy, so. Um, if you think of a pregnancy as 11 months, you want to you want to get your booster vaccinations in before the last bit of pregnancy. So the way it's usually done is that the mayor is vaccinated at uh, five, seven, and nine months of pregnancy. And you know the data are uh, sort of spotty, but it seems like um, that does reduce the amount of uh, herpes abortion. Okay. Our next question is for um, for Dr. Pasterla, and it's from. Uh, I think it's Tanya in Virginia, and maybe Tania if you're listening. Sorry if I got that wrong. Uh, she says that some vet practices are recommending vaccinations for each V1, despite a consensus uh, reached by ACVIM about uh, it preventing the neurologic form. She wants to know if we can discuss the use of vaccination in face of these. Uh, what she describes are outbreaks. And I think we've touched on this a little bit, but Dr. Pastrilla, do you want to have a a clearer answer to that? Sure. The the jury is split on that one, and it's mainly because we're lacking information on the benefit of vaccinating horses against EHE1 during an outbreak. It's been shown with all the diseases, respiratory disease, but also abortion, that there is a benefit of vaccinating horses. Going back to what the vaccine will do, they will milder clinical disease, they will decrease viral shedding, and also to some extent reduce the level of blood-borne virus. Now, the, the difficulty comes from what is the perceived benefit of vaccinated horses during an outbreak. If this was equal influenza virus, we know that there is a benefit into vaccinating animal during an outbreak. I'm not talking vaccinating animal. I'm not talking vaccinating the sick animal. These sick animals will undergo natural exposure, probably will have the best immunity that you can wish for, which is an immunity that follows natural exposure. I'm talking about high-risk horses that have the potential during an outbreak to become exposed. There is in comparison to equine influenza virus, a perceived benefit. That said, it's difficult to quantitate the benefit and and figure out, are we going to be able to prevent disease if we vaccinate horses? In other words, how many additional cases would occur if these animals would not be vaccinated? It it becomes a, a judgment call, and I would advise a horse owner to speak to the veterinarian and finding a protocol that would be doable for the horse, for the client, as well as the veterinarian. Okay. Well, thank you. And we are down to having about 20 minutes left in our live broadcast. So I'm going to skip ahead to treatments and outcomes, uh, doctors, if you're following along. Um, we have a question, Dr. Mackay from Marianne in New Jersey, and she wants to know what the survival rate is for a horse that loses its ability to stand during the course of, of the virus. Do most of these horses have to be put, 
put down and can some come through and survive? And if they can, what kind of rehab is necessary for them? Okay, so for the horses that lose the ability to stand, uh, certainly some of them survive. So we have to we have to look at that group of cases and see what distinguishes the survivors from those that don't. And in my view, a horse that uh, is unable to stand for a day, very few of those, uh, and I'll have to define for you what it means to be unable to stand. That doesn't just mean a horse that lies in the bottom of a stall. I think the horse that's unable to stand for a day, very unlikely to survive, but we wouldn't put them down then. I think a horse that's unable to stand uh, and is also uh, uh, suffering, which usually is the case after two or three days down, those are the horses uh, that generally get put down. So let me go back to this thing about being able to stand for a day. Um, my definition of whether or not they can stand is if we take this horse that's struggling on the bottom of a stall and we put a sling on it and hoist it to its feet, can it support its own weight for some time? And a lot of those horses are strong, enough, not a lot, some proportion of those horses are strong enough to stand when you hoist them to their feet, but they are not strong enough to get from the ground to their feet. And so that's one of the services that a, uh, a you know well-equipped clinic like ours and uh, Dr. Pastil is we can look after these horses and every uh, every couple of hours hoist them to their feet. And it, this is really the first part of rehab, which was part of the question. So if a horse, if you if you if you lift this horse to its feet and it just hangs in the sling and starts suffocating in the sling, then that's not standing. Those horses, if they do that for a day, uh, I would think that um, a very high percentage of those will die. Um, I've mentioned that some can, some even quite seriously affected horses that do spend some time on the ground can survive, and yes, they'll need a lot of rehab. Um, so you, so they're probably going to be fairly stall confined for a month at least during the quarantine period. But after that, if they're capable of walking around without, um, you know, losing balance and falling over, they're capable of walking around for that point. What they get during the early part of their rehab is they just get um, supervised walking exercise. And, you know, those horses get very weak, so five minutes walking might be all they can do the first day. And that's that's gradually increased um, as they're able to tolerate it. And, um, you know, it takes a lot of sort of common sense to realize where you are in this horse's recovery because they're all different. It can be weeks, can be months. So some people have used things like uh, aquasizers and walking in rivers and those kind of things to help strengthen their horses. Um, that's good. And uh, then there'll be a period where the horse is lunged. And then there'll be a long leg up period, um, you know, where it's ridden uh, flat. And then, if, if, you know, then one has to use their judgment about when you can start Introducing that horses back to back to the athletic things that originally did, and I will say um, one of the one of the areas of uh, information that's lacking either for the, even for the professionals uh, in in this area is what percentage of horses completely recover and what percentage are left with residual signs. Uh, I've certainly uh, uh, dealt with quite a few that still have residual signs after more than a year. So not all horses completely recover, but most horses that survive, I would say most horses, by most I mean more than 50% that survive have the, uh, the, the ability to recover completely, but be aware that horses, uh, that, that, that fabulous Grand Prix jumping horse, it's not going to be, even if it recovers completely, you're not going to be back to the same level 
until this time next year. You know, so it's a very frustrating and slow process, and it requires a huge amount of work by the by by the owner or by the whoever works with the horse. Okay, yeah, that that was going to be my follow up question: is uh, how much commitment does it take from the owner to get these these guys back up and running? And it sounds like quite a bit. Um, yeah. Dr. Pastrilla, we have a question that's come in from our live audience. Hillary in Kentucky wants to know, why does there seem to be a large demographic of outbreaks at the same time with no connection to each other that are in different parts of the country? For example, Florida, Utah, Tennessee. Is it possible it's the weather or the environment that's um, affecting the, the flare-ups? I think it's, there's different components to that. There's an increased awareness at this stage. And we see that all the time following a larger outbreak, the one that is happening in Florida. And people, horse owners, veterinarians will be almost aware of every single case that happens across North America. So number one is, is awareness, great awareness, and also media attention. The other part we know that we see more infections during the colder time of the year, the winter time, and it's a, it's a combination of more young animals on the ground can act as amplifier, but also larger events that do occur where animals are kept indoor, and these can actually predispose outbreak. So that's a dual, a perception, media attention, but also greater risk for animals to contract EHU-1 infection. I'm not only talking the neurological disease, I'm talking about the respiratory form, which then can lead to the neurological disease. And we see uh, increased numbers during the winter time. Just to give you a little idea, we, we have an ongoing surveillance program with Merck Animal Health, and year after year, study has been going on for five years, there is an increased number of cases that are diagnosed. We're talking respiratory ESV1 during the colder month of the year. So we're talking October to early springtime. Okay. And I think that's going to be a nice transition to biosecurity, which is the last part of our discussion. We're going to spend uh, about 15 minutes on it um, because this is how we find out how to protect our horses when we're traveling around with them. Um, the first question is going to be for Dr. Mackay, and it came in from Judy in Alberta. And Judy wants to know if there's any risk to her vet or her farrier bringing the disease onto her property and exposing her horses. Uh, it, well, it depends. The um, if if the if this is sort of maintained as a closed situation without a lot of horse traffic, so there's automatically uh, a low risk if we don't have horse traffic. So that's the first thing, is the horse traffic. The second thing, is there any, as as uh, Nicola just mentioned, the, there is huge publicity about any of these outbreaks. They become sort of nuclear very quickly. And uh, it's impossible not to be aware very quickly about um, any about outbreaks anywhere in North America, for that matter. So one would certainly be aware of outbreaks within a 50-mile radius of one's property. If there's no activity uh, close into your property or even out as far as 50 miles, um, then you know having having sort of having tradesmen and professionals and vendors coming in and off the farm would represent virtually no risk. Now that changes, of course, if these uh, 
individuals, the vet or the farrier, get involved with working on horses in the outbreak, then um, then the prudent thing we'd to do would be to delay any procedures, just have them not come on the farm, delay anything that's not an emergency. Uh, and if there's a little bit of concern, it would not hurt to um, pass you know, each of these individuals a, uh, a Sanagel and they can uh, rinse their hands. Those are pretty effective, rinsing their hands for half a minute in these alcohol uh, hand sanitizers and even uh, sort of uh, straightforward, uh, easy to construct uh, disinfectant foot baths they can be asked to step through. And that's, you know, that might be more mental than anything, but that's going to take care of most kind of low-level transfer, I would think. But but, but, this, the, but the, in the context of the question, there's almost no risk. Uh, when you think about it, um, in North America, there's, I don't know how many, I think it's, I mean, the numbers vary, but let's say five to 10 million horses. And maybe there are, on average year, I don't know uh, what it is, but let's just say there are 50 cases of EHM a year. That's 50 out of 5 million. So let's, even though it's really, everyone gets really anxious about this and they get a lot of publicity, let's realize that the risk, without knowing anything else, the risk of your average horse is really, really low. It's more likely that a meteor will strike it or, you know, that lightning will strike it twice probably. Okay. And you are or have been treating, is it one horse at University two. of Florida or was it two? Two horses. Two. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you describe a little bit about the biosecurity measures that you institute there at the vet hospital? Okay. So they are in an, they're in an isolation facility which where each uh, uh, section of isolation where these animals are has its own ear. Uh, <clears throat> so there's no... There's negligible possibility of uh, virus transferring from where they are to any other section of isolation. That's the first thing. They're in a completely enclosed stall, so there is no uh, opening to the outside. The air is vented out carefully. Um, then uh, uh, we, when we interact with these horses, we wear a full um, Tyvek suit. We look, you know, we look like. Um, you know, it looks like we're trying to deal with Ebola virus because we we completely cover up. We uh, cover virtually all parts of the body, and and when when the uh, during the early parts of each case, we actually uh, change into separate clothes, which we wear with the horse, and which we change out of uh, back into, and this is under all the protective equipment. Um, we try to only have one or two individuals associated with each horse, and have have those individuals have minimal contact with routine other horses in other parts of the hospital. And we uh, use um, hand disinfectants and uh, foot baths very generously, uh, frequently during, uh, you know, this work. Okay. So it's pretty, it's pretty secure. Okay. Well, we have a question uh, for Dr. Pasterla that has come in from our live audience. Dr. Z is listening, and Dr. Z is at Santa Anita Racetrack. And, yeah. and has a three-year-old filly that was four stalls down from the filly that uh, was diagnosed and, and died today of EHV1. Uh, Dr. Z said that he pet both horses 11 days ago. What is the chance uh, that, that hers or his could have become infected from that contact? It's difficult to give a number. I would say it depends on the biosecurity and how much risk there is from that 
susceptible to an animal to become exposed to that horse and unfortunately died. There's always a possibility within the same space if there is, as example, nose-to-nose contact, next stall, or if there is shared equipment. And that could be a rack, that could be cleaning equipment, that could be riding equipment. That's a very effective way to transmit the disease. Hands that are not washed between horses or sanitized equipment can be a very effective way to transmit. Now, it's not because an animal does not display a clinical disease that the animal has not been infected. And we've seen that during the outbreak that happened in, in Newton, Ogden, almost two years ago, we ended testing a lot of sick animals <clears throat> that tested positive for EHV1. We also ended testing a lot of healthy animals that had been exposed to clinically affected animals. And it was, to me, at least amazing to see how many horses that remained healthy were shedding EHV1. And these are the true typhoid mares. These are the horses that look healthy. The overall perception is, well, if they look healthy, I'll have to take good biosecurity precaution. That's why I want to pitch in an advice for horse owner is to truly treat every single horse during an outbreak the same way, independent if the horse displays clinical signs or doesn't. Now, specifically, if Dr. Z wants to know if this horse is shedding, then testing can be performed. A nasal secretion can be tested by PCR for the detection of the presence of EHV1. That said, one single time point is generally not enough. You have to test an animal twice, 10 to 14 days apart, in order to determine that that animal does not represent a risk to other animals. The, four, the 10 to 14 days apart is because if you test an animal during the very early stage of the disease, during the incubation period, it is possible that that animal will test negative with the specific diagnostics. That's why it is worthwhile test retesting this animal 10 to 14 days later. This animal has been or remained negative with that specific testing modality 10 to 14 days apart, which is more than the average incubation period, and it's somewhere between four to seven days, then you can easily assume that that animal does not represent a threat to other animals. That animal is not shedding EHV1. Okay. I, just, I have a, a, a question for, for Nicola as well on that. So if the contact, if the single contact was 11 days before the onset of signs, that's I mean, the chances of, if, that, if, if I'm representing that correctly, and I'm not sure that I am, but if that were the case, if that were the only contact, Correct. it would seem very unlikely to be shedding 11 days before the onset of signs, don't you think? You don't know. I mean, every scenario is possible. One scenario can happen, and we saw that, where there is no direct contact to the index case, but there's contact to additional horses within mm -hmm. the barn, where every single horse along the barn gets infected, some of them displaying clinical disease, others don't. And you can imagine if the incubation period is four to seven days, then with every single horse, you may actually prolong the course of the disease that can be as long as, you know, 21 to 28 days. 
And it's not because an animal is not displaying clinical signs that the animal hasn't been infected and is shedding. We know that the average shedding period is somewhere between 8 to 12 days. So if this animal was exposed 11 days ago, assuming an incubation period that is, let's say, one week, and this animal now is shedding, has been shedding for four to five days, that animal may still be in a phase where it is not displaying clinical signs, but still at the tail end of the shedding process. So um, our next question is from Rebecca in Oklahoma City. And Rebecca keeps her horse at a boarding stable where there's lots of transient horses coming in and out. But her horse is away from where those horses are kept. Is her horse at risk? And I think this is a good follow-up to Dr. Z's question because mm-hmm. Dr. Z's horse was probably you know, four stalls down as you know, 48, 50 feet from the other horse. How far away is safe? Um, and can other horses then transmit it to your horse across the property or a stable? Um, it, it, is not a matter of di- it is not a matter of distance, rather a matter of biosecurity. With biosecurity, I'm talking about simple measures that will prevent the spread of an infectious pathogen. And that does not only apply to EHV-1, that applies to all respiratory and enteric organisms that are highly infectious. We need to consider the HU1 is transmitted via droplet. The perfect example is nose-to-nose contact. But it can also be transmitted via common vehicle. That means hands, shared equipment, cleaning equipment, tag, a rag, a shared water bucket. So there's no guarantee that despite the fact that horses are physically and geographically separated, there may be a common vehicle between the two. In, in a perfect world, and I know the logistic in doing that aborting facility, is you want to separate high-risk horses to low-risk horses. And with low-risk horses, I'm considering resident horses, horses that live on that specific premise, never go to shows, they live their life there, and they're happy. High-risk horses will be horses that go to shows, go to clinics, commingle with other horses, and come back. You try to keep every single horse as a unit, that's, from a biosecurity standpoint, is probably the most important part, also monitoring this horse. I would still consider vaccinating a horse like the one you mentioned because there are other horses that come on the premise and there's likely going to be some breach in biosecurity. Just to put a little pitch on biosecurity, these measures that we generally always revisit during outbreak should be implemented on a day-to-day basis. I feel like every time we have an outbreak, we try to invent biosecurity protocol. These are simple measures that aim at reducing the likelihood of a horse being exposed to an infectious pathogen. They should be used every day, and not only during times like these where there's an increased awareness of ongoing outbreaks. Okay. And we have a question from our audience. Heather is listening live in Florida, and she said that her barn is attending an event in Ocala in 10 days. What specific biosecurity measures would you re- recommend she share with her grooms uh, to put in place while they're at the event? Do you have any, any additional specifics that you would add, Dr. Pasterla? I would try to stick to maybe three or four simple ways to minimize 
possible spread, which is monitor. The first one would be minimize contact between horses. Horses from the same bar, but also additional horses. If you don't use your horse, put them back in the stall. It's also very important to monitor horse. Monitor horse for appetite, attitude, taking the rectal temperature twice a day. If any clinical signs do occur, then call the attending veterinarians and have the horse worked up. It's also important to minimize shared equipment. And if shared equipment is there, the, the equipment needs to be cleaned between horses, not only clean but disinfected. The same applies to a rider that will ride multiple horses. You want to be sure that you wash your hands, you wash the riding equipment, or clean and disinfect. There's a lot of different disinfectants out there. You can use disinfectant wipes. They are very effective. And we realize that biosecurity is very complex. And you may end with 40 or 50 different measures that you need to implement. And you generally lose the compliance. I like to stick to three or four simple but effective ways. And it generally comes down to minimize movement of the horses, minimize nose-to-nose -nose contact, minimize shared equipment, monitor your horse, and also increase awareness in hygiene and cleanliness. Okay. And we are getting down to, well, we're past time, but I am going to um, ask one more question. I'm going to give this to Dr. Mackay. Um, it's from Anne Marie in the Netherlands. And Anne-Marie wants to know what the best way is to handle horses that are returning from events where there were, were reported cases. What, what recommendations would you make to Anne-Marie? Uh, Anne-Marie needs to uh, isolate that horse. I don't know if it was a horse or horses. If there was a known uh, potential contact, then this horse um, needs to be isolated and uh, Anne-Marie needs to institute the biosecurity controls that uh, Dr. Pastola just talked about. I mean, in particular, um, whether or not any testing gets done on this horse, there's always the opportunity to test at intervals uh, nasal secretions for the presence of viral DNA. But uh, absent that, this horse ideally should be physically should be isolated in such a way that it becomes that the, the, there is an inv if not a physical an invisible wall are created around this horse, um, and that'll include the use of disinfectants, protective clothing, distance, um, but perhaps most importantly, this horse needs to have its uh, rectal temperature taken twice a day. And probably anything greater than, unless it's very hot, probably anything greater than 101 degrees should uh, prompt a call to the veterinarian. Um, and that would be considered a fever. And uh, then we'll have to have a discussion with the veterinarian about further testing. And I didn't mention how long this should go on. Without, without uh, specific testing of nasal secretions, the prudent thing to do would be uh, to have this separation, isolation separation from the other horses on the farm for at least 21 days, preferably 28 days. If we consider the possibility this horse could start shedding, um, not have shown any clinical signs, and could be shedding for as much as 21 days. Okay. And so we are at the end of our time. I want to ask each one of you if you had one recommendation to everyone listening that they do to protect their horse from EHV1. Um, Dr. Pastorla, what would that one recommendation be? The single recommendation 
That's a difficult one. I would adhere to a very simple principle of biosecurity and continue to vaccinate horses. Okay. And Dr. Mackay, what would your one thing be? Well, well I, I, I couldn't... Uh... I couldn't go away from that. I might not be so enthusiastic about the vaccination part, but the simple biosecurity practice when you don't need to, uh, that would be the best way. Okay. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Um, I know I have learned a lot. I hope our audience has too and can go away feeling that confident that they can protect their horses and, and put in practice some biosecurity measures. I want to thank our sponsor as well, Merck Animal Health, uh, for bringing this to everyone live. If you would like to listen to this audio again, it'll be archived tomorrow on the website, thehorse.com, under podcasts. Uh, please share it with your friends if you feel they'll be, they would be interested. We also have a new tracking tool um, that's currently featured on the homepage of thehorse.com, and that shows where different cases and quarantines have taken place across the country. Uh, if you are looking for more information on EHV1, do a search. We have thousands of articles and uh, and videos and fact sheets on all kinds of horse health information to help you take care of your animals. Thank you again, doctors, for joining us, Dr. Pasterla and Dr. Mackay. My pleasure. And to everyone who listened live, thank you and good night. <laughs>